This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Welcome to episode 28 of your Missing the Point podcast, where we discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the downright bizarre aspects of life, as we have conversations with people from all over the world. Today, I'm joined by a man who has meticulously researched ancient civilizations, their collapse, and the inevitable conclusion that these events are trackable through energetic cycles of the Earth's sun. A man that provides information on what to expect during these societal resets, and how to keep your family safe. Ladies and gentlemen, let us welcome host of Mini Ice Age Conversations podcast, David Jabine. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, we we overlap on a lot of different ideas and the way that we see maybe history in a in a different timeline and where that takes us in the future and how these two might meet because we're definitely going to have to rethink where we're going right now. And uh, based on the past, we've seen collapse, reemergence, collapse, reemergence, and it looks like we're at another collapse phase. So, you know, just looking at the past, how can we weave through this time of perceived danger and unknown and then really prosper and, you know, make our lives even better and help others come through this transition period here? Absolutely. And I've got to say, starting off, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show because I've been a listener of yours for the longest time now. And you're solely responsible for waking me up to these cycles of destruction that seem to be happening and kicking my ass into gear a little bit and getting myself prepared and starting preps and getting into permaculture and and really starting to be more self-sufficient for what I see are going to be some very difficult times ahead. Yeah, and I have walked the talk. I ended up, after the COVID, buying a 23-acre farm out here in East Tennessee, and we put out 120 trees in the fruit orchard for everything from plums to peaches, apples, pears. We have turkeys now. We started with chickens, but we moved to turkeys and geese uh, as, you know, those eggs are much more valuable. And some of these prices on the birds now, 30 to $50 per bird as a chick. So we're thinking... Okay, we have plenty of protein from the chickens, but now what could we do to generate some revenue? Or, you know, I'm thinking past money, and I'm I'm encouraging everybody to think past money here because we're going to move into sort of a barterable, tradable, you know, future. And what what can you trade? I mean, you have your skills, obviously, that you can trade for something, but then what else? And uh, we're just trying to think a little bit outside the box by getting did. Now we have sheep as well. We have three free sheep and uh it just keeps moving on we're trying to refurb the pond there's a bunch of snapping turtles down there huge amounts of fish so we're trying to think many ways shapes and forms and then the micro hydro is my newest thing on we have a 
couple streams on the property. They flow after it rains and, you know, microhydro is the way to go. So trying to take a holistic view of, you know, we're going to need to generate our own power or substitute it. We're going to have to substitute our own in the food chain or whatever you consume in your body, have access to fresh water with the well in the spring. And this whole, you know, just step back to the 1860s or 1850s. That's kind of where we're going back to. So what did the what did a family cover of their own need that wasn't on a supply chain at that point? I mean, there were trains coming across, you know, the continents at, at, by 1860, 1870, but largely they were pretty self-sufficient except for the steel and the heavy tools and this sort of thing. So I'm kind of, you know, looking at that direction as a as a clue from the past on where we're going to go in the future here. Yeah, it's it's very strange that in the span of maybe two or three generations, all the knowledge that the average person would have for themselves and the skill sets that every person could do, we've lost over time. It's it's a very strange time to be alive that we have the collective knowledge of all of humanity at our fingertips, but we can't do the most simplest of things that our great-grandfathers could do. I agree with you 100% on that. Now, think about how that was done. They used the human default of comfort as safety against us. Because if we want to talk about resets, you know, the younger Dryas, we had the commentary impact on an ice sheet. You know, and you step back into the exit out of the last ice age where sea levels were rising. And, you know, the most stable time, if you want to talk about ancient history, is after the glaciation would onset and the full glaciation was reached across the planet. You put this into perspective of our inner glacial is only 10,000 years on average, but the full glaciation would have been 70,000 years of stable climate. So even though you might have thought an ice age, you know, the whole planet's covered in ice. Well, not really. I mean, it went down to probably 30 north and 30 south. And then that band around from the equator up to those ice walls would have been stable for 70,000 years. So think about the societies that could have formed then. But coming out of this, for something about the homo sapiens sapien, us, the human, default is safety and comfort because there was so little of it through our past that whenever that zone was reached of being able to feed yourself, having enough safety for your family so you weren't either eaten or taken by uh, rival tribes or rival or countries or quote-unquote civilizations, whatever that would be, once you found that zone where there was plentiful food, plentiful water, plentiful safety, you you just stayed there because it was such a rare type of thing to come into. So use that against us now and create that ultimate soft zone, if you will. And then three generations of that were our baseline to survive. Is that? Well, yeah, you can see how that was easily pulled off. So the manipulators of the... Uh, let's say the ruling class for a better word here have taken that to the Uber and they used our own default settings for survival against us to make sure that conditions were set that we don't survive or the majority do not survive during this, this changeover, which makes me really sad actually. Yeah. It's, it's this parasite class to use our own creature comforts against us is uh it's very evil and manipulative to the fact that they've they're playing a a long term game. They're playing a game hundreds of years in advance of what the average person knows, and that's what really astounds me about the work that you've done. You've you've researched what's been happening in these fourth turning type of situations 
but it's not as simple as an economic collapse or a, a change in culture or a change of demographics. You've actually pinpointed it to real natural events in cycles that seem to topple these societies and these civilizations. Can you go into that a little bit, please? Yeah, I would love to, but you know, you need to, you framed it perfectly there. What is happening is this opulent class is trying to strip wealth from quote unquote, the peasantry. So it's just going to be a binary level of wealth. You're going to have super wealthy and ultra uber wealthy. Again, I call opulent class, parasite class, whatever you like to term them. And then they're going to shove everybody else down into the peasantry class. And we are going to repeat serfdom once again. Now, the way they do that is they ride on top of natural cycles, which are hidden from most of the public or most of the general populace. Do not understand these cycles at all. So when you see these weather events coming in and I, you know, climate events, and I'll, I'll stay with that. I'll use the word climate. The cycles are known so think about the power that you would have over society if you knew the onset dates of these cycles that would upset food production globally. The weather would change along with it. You would see superstorms, the jet streams would move into different positions, the cloud cells would move, and you'd have a terrified un- unknown populace because you can go back to the mind when they you know understood the cycles of eclipses and the priests would know in advance when the eclipses were coming, but nobody else did. So they were, we're going to make the sky black because you disobeyed us. And then in the morning from 90, you know, 901 to 905, the eclipse comes in. And they're like, get on your knees and worship us. We're going to make the sun come back if you, so every, everybody's quaking. We'll, we'll obey you now. And then we'll let the sun rise again. And then the eclipse is over. You know, like imagine the power you have. So if you knew a grand solar minimum was onsetting, the entry into it, what years would it onset? What years would it strengthen? And then what years would it be most obvious to the public where you could no longer hide it? And then what would be the ramifications of full max effect on geomagnetic planetary within the solar system itself, but also on the earth, the magnetic field, the, the, the change in the human behavior pattern based on magnetic field changes in our brains would also be mapped out. That would be part of it. The fear or the, the uh, rewards pushed, pulled, pushed, pulled. And, you know, if you had this information of the onsets and it only occurs every 400 years and then there's max, they call them grand, super grand solar minimums. And it's a culmination of five of those 400 year cycles. So about a 2000 year cycle, trace that back. We got the start of a new, new religion around that same time period. So think about the power of control over society. You knew it was going to change anyway. You absolutely knew nothing you can do. Every society prior has collapsed. Not a thing you can do except, you know, protect yourselves. And, well, this is a wealth extraction. So I'm wondering back through time, you know, take it back to the Roman era. How many times has this wealth extraction occurred? Like how much was the general wealth spread across the planet in, say, 79 AD or something, 535 AD? And then how has it been consolidated and consolidated? And really, when we look and, you know, they talk about the numbers of, well, this you know, the uber wealthy controls 60%, 1% of the population controls 60% of the wealth on the planet, you know, spin it back a few cycles of consolidation. And it was it 1% of the population was a quote unquote, the uber elite in the Roman era times only controlled like 10% of the pop of the wealth. And then each successive cycle, it gets more and more stratified and more and more consolidated. So I'm just wondering, you know, where we sit at this point, because I assure you, on you know 100 here they this elite 
opulent parasite class is riding on top of a natural cycle to achieve a greater outcome while not sharing this knowledge with the public. So that's where I sit and I have since pretty much like the first months of doing the research on my channel when I started in what, 2014. It's it's a scary thought that these megalomaniacs out there have got this knowledge. And like you said, they're using it to extract wealth, but there's also the more horrifying uh, thing that these people, they, they suck out the wealth of society before this cycle comes into it, to its final stages and they will go and they'll position themselves somewhere in the world. They know they're going to be safe so they can come out afterwards when it's all settled and, and it's all said and done. And if the majority of society has been wiped out and taken back to, say, a Stone Age era and all the knowledge of what the world was like has been lost, think about what these people could set themselves up as. They could set themselves up as a priest class. They could even set themselves up as gods with the level of technology they would have in comparison. And like you said, maybe that's how they've started these religions and these ways of thinking in the past. Yeah, but I think you misspoke there because you said these people. They're not people. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not. You know, when you really look at it, there's a subhuman entity or something extra human entity within them, either in inhabiting their psyche or maybe there's some cloaking device on the outside of them. But really, you have to look at it from just common sense. You don't do that to an entire species on the planet unless you're from another species. Because the way you look at an ant, like we have an ant, we got fire ants all over the place here on the property. So for me, when they get too close to the house or too close to the chickens or somewhere we're going to be, uh, I put poison on them. I try to, you know, my place is one of the cleanest properties around here. Even the Amish, when they come up and visit, because we do a lot of business with them. Uh, they bring their horses up and I'm like, yeah, just let them graze out here. I don't spray anything. I go very, very, very little on the anything poisonous except for the anthills because they're really ferocious. You get bitten up by a bunch of fire ants, you're going to have a serious problem. But, uh, you know, I look at that as, well, they're just fire ants. So for me to pour a bunch of stuff on them to get rid of them or reduce the numbers of them, they're a different species. You know, and the way that we can flip the mirror on that is... Whatever is or has been, like I say, survived these resets and popped out with their technology intact or semi-intact compared to the rest, is doing exactly that. I, you know, have some thoughts going back circa seven to ten thousand years prior, or even thirty thousand years into the past, even eighty thousand. Because at eighty thousand years, the you have to so put it in perspective here. The the 10,000 years of warmth that we've in the interglacial has been a stable period of time for 10,000 years to do agriculture, et cetera. Well, the entry out of the last, into that last ice age from, say, 118,000, 108,000 years ago, that would have been solidly 10,000 years of stability by that point. So, you know, there's talk of civilizations 80,000 years ago, et cetera, which makes sense because you would have stabilized uh, the glacial ice sheets at that point, 80,000 years ago, and you would have had 10,000 years of development. So whoever still controls this, and then what about the previous interglacials? Like we never find any relics from 118,000 years ago, which was the last time it was 10,000 years of warmth. Like we're, those same ones where they, they got into an area where they knew that there were, the glaciation and the ice sheets wouldn't cover them and they would not be buried under ice. And then where are these zones? They have to be equatorial to 30 north or 30 south. I don't know, but it seems the same, maybe it's not the same tech, but it's the same mind frame continues after 400,000 years or so. So I, I'm really 
into the thought that it's something non-human in the control mechanism right now. It definitely seems that way. And seeing the way that things are going at the moment, it's just for an Australian context that I'm in Victoria, the southern tip of mainland Australia, and our capital city has had three earthquakes within the last week that is completely out of odds for the demographic and of, of for the this type of land mass that we're on. We have no major fault lines across that area, and we've had a 3.8 with a followed by 2.3 magnitude um, tremors following it all across areas where there are no traditional fault lines. And I know that what you've been talking about in a lot of previous shows, that the solar activity and the magnetic field is, is going to present its, itself in earthquakes and liquefaction. I think we're starting to see some of those elements happen right now in Australia in areas that don't traditionally have those. And I'll point to another one in the uh, mid-Atlantic. It's in the middle of a plate. They've had earthquakes out there too. So it seems to be happening in these plate middle of plate zones where there's no, you know, obviously California, you got two plates. Asia, you have two plates coming up. But in the center of a plate, it's just not normal. And, you know, what can what can explain that? Electromagnetic activity, that's the only possible thing that can explain that. There's really nothing else. I mean, maybe there's a new punch through a volcano and you're suddenly going to get a volcano coming out near you somewhere. I mean, how terrifying would that be? A volcano <laughs> opens under your feet and then it just keeps growing and growing and growing in the middle of, like, the trendiest neighborhood somewhere, you know? Like, <laughs> Have some coffee. Hey, I'll I'll have a double espresso and I'll watch the volcano grow for the next 20 minutes before I got to get into my cubicle. So (laughs) they make some pretty good coffees in Melbourne, but I don't think they want them that hot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we don't know. Stone baked. Hey, let me ask you a quick question. Like down there, how's the, I've been reading some reports. So since you're on the ground right there, a little bit chillier and wetter than normal this uh, last six months, or is it, you know, within what you remember or how is it? I was hoping you were going to bring this up because like you said, when the um, you were talking about some of these things happening a long time before they actually happen, you seem to be right on the money with a lot of what the cycles you're seeing, and they're playing out as you've researched it. When the Honga Tonga volcano erupted and put all that ocean water up into the atmosphere, all of last summer, I can honestly say we did not have a summer in Australia. We had the wettest conditions to the point where all the crops that I'd put in either we ended up with root rot or over one or two days where they got the smallest little bit of warmth, they instantly went to seed. They thought it was a season change that they need to quickly change and get their seeds out. So the crop yields were absolutely terrible within my own raised beds. But yeah, like you said, it's a lot wetter than it should be. And it's a lot colder than it should be. We didn't have a summer at the end of last year and the start of this year. So it'll be very interesting to see how the summer months um, in the later half of this year end up going. But this so far, it's looking like your stereotypical wet winter that hasn't stopped since uh, the end of last year when it should have been a summer. Yeah, it gives credence. You know, so just to reference that for the Hunga Tonga eruption, if nobody's aware, it occurred, what, January 15th of 2022, it injected 10% more water vapor into the atmosphere or moisture, if you like to term it as that, in a single event, in a single day. So we had 100% water in the atmosphere that could turn into rain and clouds and evaporation in the oceans. And then we just added 10 to 10% into a closed system in a single day. Now, you got to tell me that that is, if you say that all oh, that'll be no effect, it'll just thin itself out. Okay. I'd like to have whatever you're having because that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Well, the logical reasoning would be that uh, that you would have 10% increased on your wet seasons or 10% extended time frame on what your wet seasons would be. True. And, you know, I've been looking at some of the crop data coming out of Western Australia, and they said that they held all-time bumper crops in Australia. And, you know, they're, they're, they're claiming that it's the largest wheat yields ever. But the problem was they couldn't export it. And I'm like, well, wait a second. You're telling me that you can't export, but you have the largest yields ever, but you can't export any of it because of some bottlenecks with transportation and logistics. And I'm like, wait a second. Is that is that the cover story for why they can't export it? You just claim that there's record production? Because everywhere across every other country in the Southern Hemisphere, like uh, let's say you go to Brazil or if you go to Argentina and you go to Paraguay and you go to South Africa and any of these other places that are growing grains, they all struggled and they were down some 30 to 40%. But magically, Australia, just record production when every other country doing grains in the same hemisphere, pretty much on the same latitudes, just struggled. But, you know, and then the excuse was, well, we're having trouble exporting that out this year. So go figure. Yeah, I think that's obfuscating the truth a little bit where uh, in the mainstream, they've kind of been peddling it to us Aussies that a lot of our trade happens with China. We're pretty much predominantly a food ball for Southeast Asia and mostly China. And our trade relations with China haven't been at the best for the past five years. So they're kind of saying that China's just not buying our grain. Now, both you and I know that China are buying up as much protein and as much food sources as they can. They know what's happening. The Chinese have seen this cycle play in and out, but generations now they know what's on the horizon so it seems very odd for me that china would just neglect to buy food from australia who's closer to them who supposedly got bumper crops why wouldn't they be buying it so that kind of tells me they're saying that china's not buying it but in fact they don't actually have the crops that they say they do yeah because another thing you know if you just look at pricing you know pricing kept increasing you know for wheat through these times even so generally, when it came into the harvest season, it drops prices. There's a glut. And that's generally when, you know, countries like China would jump in on the buying arena and secure supply. But for prices not to dip, you know, with all-time record production, it really didn't make sense. There's like two different, if you just come from a, from a fact-based perspective, if the prices actually rose when they're supposed to drop because of harvest based on the amount of harvest, and then China's not buying, and then you can't export for some reason, you just have to scratch your head and say, wait. What's really going on? Now, if I could throw uh, something, a a Chinese factoid in Australia to you here for a second, you got to take you back maybe four years. Now, they're up the area up at Cape York and Darwin, coming down into Darwin and a little bit off the East Coast going into the outback. They do a lot of cattle ranching up there, but it's been so dry for so long that a lot of farmers were giving up and, you know, cashing out of their land. Well, unbeknownst, and then finally the news showed that China bought I don't know, a million acres up there, but it was, they got a super incredible discount for it because it was, it was, it it appeared as if it was going to continue to dry out where the farmers weren't going to even be able to continue ranching because it was going to get so dry that they couldn't even feed the cattle up there. So China came in and swooped all that land up at a really incredible bargain, you know, because they were saying, well, we'll help the economy and we'll keep some people there. We'll do construction. We'll do water projects, blah, blah, blah. You know how China sells it. But then it started to rain now. And that's up there is now just verdant fields of grasses. Like, how did the Chinese know that that specific spot on your or on your continent or your country was going to come back green again in advance? That's what I'm saying. There's they really understand the cycles of where it's going to be hit, where it's going to there's going to be a movement of 
blocking pattern. So, you know, an ice age, everybody might think like an ice age. Okay. How does it really work? Well, what happens, there's a, a blocking pattern that sets up for centuries and it never dissipates. So you'll get a higher pressure system in an area that will stay there for 200 years and everything bends around it and it continues to dump snow in the exact same areas and it never moves and it never shifts. So if you also knew where these blocking patterns would start to set up, like we experienced one in the United States, which is taking our wheat production to 100 year lows here. This blocking pattern is pushing in drought for the last four years in the middle section of our grain growing areas in the heartland. Now, not so much up where they grow corn up near the Great Lakes, but all the way through uh, like from Colorado down through Nebraska and the panhandle there into northern Texas. And that whole area has just been bone and I mean bone dry for years now. Because of the same blocking pattern that is set up during this La Nina for the third La Nina in a row. So you can actually see it in smaller time frames occurring. Now, can you imagine if it goes on centuries, not just a year? Like that blocking pattern would continue for, if it were, to continue for another two to three years, we'd be back into another Dust Bowl era. Yeah, it's almost as if they've got the playbook and they know where the new grow zones are going to be or where the traditional grow zones used to be. Um, there's a lot of history in North um, Australia where the Chinese actually traded with Indigenous Australians, and it goes back at least 60,000 years for as long as Indigenous people have inhabited this landmass. So you can quite easily say that the Chinese have had the finger on the pulse of what grow zones work well and what parts of Australia. But it even goes into an interesting point of fact that the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, where the Chinese are investing so heavily within Australia, South America, and Africa, um, buying out ports, investing in highways and railways. They're setting up the infrastructure for themselves so they can make sure they can remain fed in some kind of a calamity or a, or like you said, potentially even another Ice Age event. Yeah, that's Shanghai Cooperation Agreement is the actual glue that sticks it all together. That is the bedrock of what we're seeing with the Belt and Road right now and the movement to the BRICS currencies. But North Africa, one of my favorites to talk about, and the Sahel, you know, we go back on that cycle right there and mega lakes in the middle of what we consider Chad and the southern parts of Libya, etc. Vast river systems, the Ghana kingdom from, say, 600 AD, controlling the gold and salt trade all through rivers, using rivers... To move through. And then I was like, wait, wait a second. No, hold on. I've seen a huge amount of maps from the 1500s that still show those same lakes and those same river channels and estuaries, you know, full. They're blue on the maps. But they're telling us in traditional sciences that the last time there were mega lakes and any kind of rivers that could support trade at that level were some 6,000 years prior. I'm like, wait a second. You know, cartographers, you know, they were under penalty of death by faking anything that came out to return back to the monarchies and the, the royalty of the time. That was punishable by death. If you were a cartographer and you had, quote unquote, faked the information, if it was not factual, because that's how they relied on trying to expand their kingdoms as well. And it could be anybody from England, France, Spain, whatever. But when you go back to that time, I mean, I believe the cartographers way more than I believe a history book because history is rewritten all the time. But those maps are literally a moment of time locked in stone for a better term. But if you see it on one map, that might be an anomaly. 
But routinely on every map that you see in the 14 and 1500s, they have lakes and and large lakes and river estuaries and all these things traveling through Africa. And another thing, they show incredible amounts of green in what is considered like the empty quarter of Saudi Arabia on the Red Sea. That would be Western Saudi Arabia, green all the way down where the Red Sea was. But this is the frankincense route. Again, you know, you go back to the Aksum kingdom that controlled the gold trade right around the same time. So the Romans collapsed, let's say 535 or 5, 500 AD. From that point to like say 500 to 800 AD, there was another kingdom called Aksum, A-X-U-M, that had the most precise gold and silver weights that they took over from Rome, but they controlled the frankincense route. They controlled right now what we consider Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, that whole area all the way. And then they met and traded with the kingdom of Ghana that controlled Central Africa all the way over to other places like you call Mauritania, Nigeria, et cetera, today. But they had this vast trade network all powered by rivers. And, uh, you know, you look at some of these old maps in the areas that are green, 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 just massive amounts of like grasslands and, you know, sub forests, et cetera. And there's really a, a couple missing pieces of history that we're looking at here. A, about the monetary base of things but B, about how quickly climate systems can change. And then our history that we've been strictly lied to, but I find it interesting that wherever you look back on these maps, what is totally bone dry right now, China is on top of like a duck on a June bug, just like they were right over in Australia and, you know, Cape York, Darwin, Outback area. And they're doing it in the Middle East, North Africa and the Sahel because they know that cycle's coming back. And if I might interject one last point here, uh, the West African monsoon is shifting also, and it's bringing more natural rainfall over like Mauritania in. But for some reason, it's missing Morocco. But from Morocco south all the way down, that area is getting more green just from natural rainfall. And China's been putting out a lot of infrastructure to try to tap the Nubian sandstone aquifer to bring up underground water resources. Now, and then you combine that with above ground you know, precipitation increases, and then suddenly you can put a new grow zone out in the middle of what is now the desert, and then you can get a double rotation crop. And again, it's super, 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 super cheap land. There's millions of square kilometers of crop production that it could be put online right there. So traditionally, China does lose its crop growing areas during these grand solar minimums. So if you were going to replace it, you get stuck to Belt and Road. You control all the ports, all the money, all the rail, all the rail lines. You control all the banking, the finance. Of course, you could get food grown in one region of the planet and have a continuous ant line of shipping back to your own nation. But well, even, well, traditionally, even according to the modern scholars of history, the breadbasket for the Roman Empire was always North Africa. It was a bountiful place where crops were were constantly being rotated, and it was a perfect place. But at the same time, they're trying to push this idea that North Africa's always been a desert. It's always been inhospitable and it's good for nothing. But like you said, the Chinese seem to have their finger on the pulse of where to go, where to set up, where to invest for that long game to play out. Well, it's been like that. Think about the Silk Road, traditional Silk Road, camels, etc., going all the way from you know Xinjiang over in the western areas of uh, China transiting through Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and then popping out over in Istanbul and Turkey. Okay, now do that for 4,000 years. You're certainly going to understand how the climate had shifted just along that route in the northern areas there. But unbeknownst to everybody, 
There was a Southern Silk Road, which also, but they didn't use camels there because it went through Yunnan, up through uh, northern Myanmar, over through India, and then it, it then it reconnected back up uh, somewhere through Afghanistan, and then it popped back into Central Asia. That was called the Southern Silk Road. But then they also had a Maritime Silk Road, which was just using the coastlines coming through the Malacca Straits and then following. And once it popped out there, then, you know, jump over to Sri Lanka and then up. Do that for 4,000 years. You would understand the climate system through the northern part of Asia, the southern parts of Asia, and then also the way that the oceans would behave. You would have it mapped out. You would definitely know again and again. And if you let's use the 400 year timeline, that gives you 10 different iterations. And, you know, the same thing, they tap, the Chinese kept meticulous, meticulous notes. If you think the British Navy was meticulous, no way. They they were sloppy kindergartners compared to Chinese maritime and uh, what they reported back to the emperors at times like this. So they're, they're for sure <clears throat> understanding the changes are here again, and they're trying to protect themselves from another downfall or collapse of a dynasty, the Xi dynasty. Yes, and you you look at today and the, the main dates which pop up that go along with this new world order agenda or uh, the World Economic Forum, they've got these dates set in place, 2025, 2030. They've got this timeline for us to go green and detransition away from fossil fuels and become less dependent on on what they say is bad for mm-hmm. the world to reduce the carbon. But those dates seem to go straight in in line with what's happening um, with our sun and the impacts it's having on our world physically. So do you think that's them rubbing the dates in our faces or is that them trying to set up the plebs, the the working class, the people that they can see as being lesser than them, setting them up as a distraction and kind of manipulating the system in a way that they can extract that last little bit out before they go into hiding. Well, a bit of both. And, you know, one big thing that a lot of people are overlooking here is they're going to keep breeding stock for the surf class alive somewhere. So if you think about these 15 minute cities, are they really 15 minute cities or are they going to be zones where breeding uh, plebeian stock and peasantry is kept at minimal subsistence levels to continue to breed because, you know, the way we look at it with information flowing on the internet the last few years, 20 years, for example, there's been a split in, in also the way, like you're incredibly intelligent. I know a lot of other people who are incredibly intelligent, but then it's just like this wealth extraction. You have this super incredible elite that control a vast majority of the earth's resources but now do that in a thinking sense. So there's a huge amount at the bottom there that only eat junk food, only consume the news. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. How shall I, shall I jump? That's the kind of people they want. So if you're going to run into a 15-minute city perceiving safety, that's the kind of person they want. They don't want you or I out here growing our own food. We're the wrong kind of person. We ask questions. We do research. We try to delve into to, to things to make sense of them. It's almost an Aldous Huxley analogy of a brave new world where they've got the controllable people who are uh, controlled through dopamine hits and all the things that make them feel happy and pleasant and at ease. And then you've got the wild people who live out on the fringes who are truly free, but are seen as pond scum in comparison to the people that run these giant megalithic cities that are self-sufficient. I'll be the pond scum. Cause you know what? <laughs> Uh, algae is some of the best fertilizer you can possibly uh, put on your plants. 
Yeah, so there's this idea that failure, it's failure is just, you can't do it. Failure is a terrible thing. If you experience failure, you shouldn't have tried in the first place. But failure is fertilizer. Failure helps you learn from the mistakes you've made and helps you persevere and grow in whatever you're doing. So we have to go out there. We have to get our hands dirty. We have to try things. We have to try a crop for the first time. And if half of it fails, so be. You know what to do differently next time. You know what to plant instead. And that's the idea which people in these 15-minute cities would never think of because they've got everything on the ready. They've, everything they need in life is within a 15-minute uh, walking time frame from their house. They don't have to worry about things. They've got those creature comforts presented for them. They, they've got big daddy government there to support them in every single way. Oh, and here comes another line of electrical front and run for your life and get, oh, we can stay in the building. They're, they're grounded. We don't have to worry about that. Oh, and the 20 pound hailstones. Well, they built, built the concrete a little bit extra tough with the hempcrete. So we're safe inside the, the, the shelter here as long as the storms pass. You know, we're going to get into some super storm kind of stuff. But I'll, I'll say one thing about making mistakes. If you're going to be doing some homesteading, the first and foremost, one number one thing you're going to need to learn about is fencing. Because you're going to have to start to fence things off to keep predators out and keep your, like, for example, our dogs in so they can protect. You're going to want to fence things off so the chickens have their own area there. Sheep are going to need their thing. We've got turkeys over here, like turkey section for a better term. But you're going to need to start fencing stuff off. And then for the garden, and then you need to put different fencing so the rabbits can't get in there. Like the amount of mistakes you're going to make on fencing, on putting poles in and trying to just even get the wire up and wrap it and all these. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's going to take you a year plus of just doing so many different projects and making the mistakes. And I encourage you to make as many mistakes as you can, because you're going to find a better way to do it. But, but I would encourage you even more to find somebody who's already done and made all the mistakes for you and bring them on as an expert to help you out immediately. So you learn the best of techniques immediately, instead of having to go through that learning curve. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things moving forward here and uh, making mistakes is going to be one of them. And, you know, again, you hit on it earlier with the root rot and things with vegetation and different types of plants. It's going to be an ever moving, you know, curve to deal with all these changes in our system, you know, the earth's terrestrial system, the electromagnetic fields changing. The UVB is going to increase or UV radiation striking the ground surface is going to increase temperatures, rainfall. There's so many things that the seasons will be shorter or longer, depending on where you are on the planet at the moment. And it sounds exactly like I'm describing global warming, the original way that they describe global warming. Well, why is that? Well, they knew these electromagnetic effects would have the same event. They set up global warming in your mind, knowing that that's exactly what would occur in this electromagnetic changes from the sun on our planet. So they place that. So once you see it, you're not scared. You're like, oh, that's global warming. You, oh, you don't believe it's CO2, you're bad. You know, but they already put it in place. So you got to realize this whole global warming thing was to accustomize you to these natural earth changes that we're seeing. And we're going to have to deal with them as we move through, but they're going to get way more amplified than they have told you in the global warming scenarios. The hail events is one big thing that's going to get the updrafts are going to be much stronger with the changes in the um, jet streams and the cloud cells are colliding in the sky. So when you get they get an atmospheric uh, river coming out of the sky, atmospheric compression event is the way John Casey had described it to me. And the more that the, there's collisions in the sky, the stronger the wind on the updrafts will become. 
and you need the updraft to get that hail up there and then drop it and then pull it back up and drop it and create those layers on the ice on the outside, starting from that dust particle. But we're going to see some massive hail. I mean, you talk about what what, if, what would happen if your average size hail was two kilos every storm. And on the outset, you would get some that's like 10 kilo hail coming down. And that's 22 pounds for those of you in the States. This is what was referenced in the 1600s of 20 pound hailstones. And the Bible talks about this too, these massive hailstones coming down. So between, and in the 1300s also, between actual real sightings of people in logs and journals talking about massive hail pounding villages into, into splinters made of wood buildings, and then also religious references to the same. You got to think there's some truth in that. And now we get some scientific validation that the hail size is going to increase as we move forward. That's scary. It, it is very scary. And they the think that they're priming us for something that they don't actively want to tell us about, but they're getting us used to the idea of it. Like you said, they put out films like The Day After Tomorrow where they show these basketball-sized hailstones hitting the ground. Well, you we've all seen the damage that golf-ball-sized hail can do to cars and houses. Imagine what happens when it's a bowling ball or a watermelon or bigger. That's just going to be in itself detrimental to society and our infrastructure. But the thing that really concerns me is there's a lot going on in the media at the moment, little five-minute snippet stories about near misses with Earth, with... Uh, three school bus size uh, asteroids or meteors or uh, 12 giraffe sized stones in the space flying towards Earth. They always give it these really stupid, ridiculous measurements to make the story a joke and, and something that shouldn't be taken seriously. But we're seeing an uptick in these uh, celestial bodies coming very close to our planet. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you missed the story of three elephants standing on each other's backs on top of a beach ball <laughs> rolling past the earth. <laughs> yeah, something like that. The <clears throat> weakening magnetic field across our solar system is just allowing more things to come past the sun that would normally get <clears throat> pulled into the sun as a sun grazer comet or some sort of, you know, debris that would get sucked into the sun or burn up. There's a lot more that's going to be passing through. And there's another thing they're priming you for that's coming in April of 2025. So I, I could I talk about these gas giants lining up in a square configuration as perceived from our planet in October of 2024. In the outer solar system, we have the sun and then the Earth's going to pass through that magnetic anomaly, uh, second magnetic field. I mean, really... Not so many terms for it, because I don't think they understood it to the aspect that we do with magnetism back in, say, the Roman era. But once we, <clears throat> excuse me, once we pass through that, the Earth's going to swing out in front of the sun in 2025 of April, and it will be the only thing there. It'll be the Earth in front of the sun, the sun behind us, all the planets behind us, all the gas giants behind us in a square. And that's a, that's the thing. It's going to tug everything into the planet, into the front of the planet here. So anything that's space debris is going to pelt our Earth first. So and the way I'm seeing these stories is a buildup to get you more conditioned to more space debris, uh, ground strikes, uh, more, you know, bolides rolling through the atmosphere, larger ones. And we've seen an uptick. Like, it's hard to turn on the news now if you follow alternative uh, extreme weather news that you can't find just giant bolides, you know, lighten up the skies with, with shockwave, 
you know, hitting at, at once it hits that termination point in the atmosphere, if it, if it gets to that point of breakup before it strikes the ground, these are more common than not now, these bigger events. And uh, that's going to be something to behold. And I'm super excited to be part of it, to be able to witness it. Like when we come around April of 2025 is going to be something to behold. And, you know, these 2030 and the 15 minute cities, I think is going to be for those who are terrified enough that they're going to run for safety and they're going to beg for it. And the things that you're going to have to do to get into these cities and be, be accessible to the food, the water, you're going to be chipped. They're putting things in your body that you, you're not my personal self. I, I, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather stay out in the countryside and they haven't, at the same time, when they were setting up global warming excuses, they could have told us, hey, all this is really inbound. <clears throat> Why don't you all start growing your food and getting your community set? But then they would lose their breeding stock. <clears throat> and there also wouldn't be uh, any control mechanism and they wouldn't be able to siphon the wealth because most people would have gone off system by now. Truly, they would have. Because if it would have been on an every front page newspaper, hey, get your communities ready. Hey, get your food. Just as much as they're indoctrinating us about xyz choose your choose your frivolousness of the month here you know there's a lot of control loss when people get autonomous but you're going to need to be autonomous to really get through this you can't go into those cities please don't go in there if you do you're stuck you're not yeah, coming out i think they're not walking is- out either they, there'll be containment grids with wire fencing pay, facing inward you once you get in there you're not coming out not at that's all that's a scary and, thing and i think this is why they've got in their long-term plans by 2025, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's a lot of plans around grounding a lot of international flights and domestic flights. They're trying to stop the amount of air travel that's happening in the world because of the, the carbon emissions, right? Well, that does two things. It prevents people from getting to places where they can be safe for themselves. They can avoid those 15-minute cities. But it also gets planes out of the sky if these bolides and these um, bodies in space are actually penetrating our atmosphere it's not going to be the safest place to have aircraft is it no and you have to think about electromagnetic field changes you talk about the bermuda triangle well that is an electromagnetic field anomaly within our planet's crust now imagine if that turns on to level 10 and what if that, what happens there's a there's one off of asia too it's the asian triangle between uh, japan and taiwan uh, the thing. devil's triangle i believe yeah that's right you know more about that one than <laughs> i do because you're closer there but think about all these electromagnetic your airplanes going along and then it hits a zone. It just drops, literally just drops straight out of the sky like a stone. Like you can only do that once or twice before people start asking questions. And if it's different types of aircraft too, like if it's a 737, 767, whatever, and they're all starting to drop out, that's a huge problem versus it's this model. It's the 770 or whatever. <laughs> it's this one. We got to ground the fleet of those until we figure it out. Well, that's a great excuse until it starts happening to little tiny Cessnas. Anything from the larger aircraft, you know? I mean, what are you seeing on the 2025 landscape? Like where you are down in Australia, what are they programming your mind for from like, let's say now to 2025, which is just another year and a year and a half. And then from 2025 to 2030, it seems like there's two segments that they're each individually plugged in for. So I'm curious down in Australia, like what are they, what are they preparing you for down there mentally or how are they getting you to, I know the messaging similar around the world, but it's going to be slightly different for each area. Well, I think personally, they're trying to drive people into the the big cities at the moment. They're dismantling all the means of regional um, 
professions and economies. We've recently, we're supposed to have a, a 2026 um, end to old growth forest logging, which is sustainable because they regrow it in our state. Well, they've just brought that forward by a year. So all logging in my state will disappear next year. So you're going to have all these regional uh, families who are forced out of their regional homes, often their hobby farmers, and they're going to be forced into the big cities. On top of that, we have a lot of the the energy infrastructure is being shut down. We're losing a lot of our coal mines. They're shutting them down and they're not replacing them with anything other than renewables, which we know just doesn't stack up on a bigger scale for what the needs are of the populace. So they're definitely driving the majority of the Australian population into our capital cities, I think preparing us to be in a place that we can't get out of at the same time as setting in place things like um, digital driver's licenses, which you have to have on a on a, a digital um, device like a phone or an iPhone or a, a Android. So they're setting up that CBDCs kind of a system where we're constantly trackable, they know where we are and they know where we're living at all times. Yeah, and I'll, I'll throw a new one out here since you're in Australia and I'm in the United States here. This came out on June 3rd, this article just yesterday. Somebody sent it to me. He's like, David, you got to look at this. I got, thank you for anybody out there that's, you know, giving me hat tips and uh, directions to articles because I'm only one one person, you know, I can't see everything. So anybody who sent me links, thank you so much. It really helped me, you know, delve down into some things because you got all these sets of eyes out there on the same problem. You know, where does it take us? So here's the article here. World Economic Forum accelerates plan to engineer global famine. Okay, we know that's going on anyway with GM crops, et cetera. But here's the startler. 13 nations agree to abolish farming. And I said, what? That So what they're going to do is stop farming pretty much. There's going to be limits on nitrogen. If you buy nitrogen fertilizer, you're going to have to register to buy it. Like I have a registered farm here and I'm on a green belt because I have enough acres to qualify for that program. But for them, the way it reads for me is they're going to make me register to be able to go buy fertilizer. And once I reach my allotment for the year, then they'll say, no, you can't buy anymore. And again, that rolls right back into the, the CBDCs. Now, here's the nations that are signing on to this pledge to transform their farm policies. And this is the thing. It's so vague. It's it's the global methane pledge. And it's to focus on the deployment of science-based practices, innovation, technologies in line with sustainable food production, which means insects, in my opinion, but that's all it is, is this whole binding agreement that they put out that now 17 nations. So I'll read them to you here. The United States, oh, 13 nations, I misspoke, excuse me. Uh, United States, Argentina, Australia, Brazil. And they're looking to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Those are all the major grain producers right there. If you were going to scrape together the world's grain production, oh, and Germany's in there too. They're a huge grain producer. United States, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, and Germany. That is a lion's share of the global grain production. And then we have a smaller one here from Africa, Burkina Faso, Chile, Czech Republic, Ecuador, Panama, Peru, and Spain. Now, they've all agreed to meet again in 2024, or at least push their agendas there, because apparently there's too much methane, too much CO2, and too much nitrogen pollution in the waterways that we need to stop agriculture in these nations and switch it or supplant it with what they call sustainable food production. But you and I, 
True, you and I know for sure what that is. Uh, that is not anything yummy that has a fat and marbled content on it. <laughs> Lovely. I really crickets. am shocked that such an article would come out. I really am. Well, it, it gets worse, David. If, like you said and alluded to earlier, it would be fantastic if they gave us the heads up and we all started making victory gardens now and we all started helping each other and supporting each other. But they don't want that for us. So much to the fact that in Victoria, my state of Australia, a Biosecurity Act amendment occurred where government officials can come onto your property, seize livestock, crops, including backyard gardens. Why does a government need to step foot onto my property to check out what my carrots are doing or my potatoes it's just a means of controlling what little self-sufficiency we have left because like you said they don't want us to be that way they want us to move into these big cities and be the serfs of their techno feudalist future you know how many instances have you heard of that happening since that law was passed is there are there articles out like they came into my backyard and ripped up my entire pumpkin patch and took all my beets out or something? I mean, are there any, any, I could see with the livestock because they've, they've been raiding farms here. And oh, by the way, you know, I, I live about a mile and a half from the Amish farm where we are at. Now, last year, they were hassled by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. An inspector came in and said, you can't sell the eggs because they had them out, you know, in the egg section right there. Uh, as so for they had the- to put them. No, and they had to put them under the counter, right? So then you had to ask for them, but they were under the counter and they were still visible. Like if you checked out at either, you know, to pay for your thing, you could see the eggs under the counter. Well, the USDA was just in there last week and hassled them again. Oh, you can see the eggs. So they were required to put like a sheet or a piece of fabric over so you couldn't even see the eggs to ask them for them. You literally had to ask. And any sign in the whole entire place that said ask for eggs, they had to take down. So any reference of eggs in the place is gone. And the actual visual seeing it somewhere in there, and you could ask, hey, are those eggs? Can I buy them? They had to put that under fabric so nobody can see the eggs. And you're not allowed to put a poster up or a sign up that says we have eggs for sale. So I know on the meat and the egg side, they're really messing with the Amish here. And I'm sorry, I disturbed your thought. Back to that. Have you seen any instances of of them going into home gardens or you know on farms to confiscate veg or, or meat or animal? Um, well, they're, they're starting at a very small scale. They're setting up the system that allows them to, air quotes, legally do it, where we've recently in Australia for the first time had the, the bee mite get into our into our colonies. So they're starting off now by burning out and destroying people's bee colonies if they're in an affected area. They can have complete evidence that their bees aren't infected. Vets can um, notify them that, yes, there's no mites within these colonies, but they're killing off large swaths of people's personal beehives while leaving the big corporate ones alone. And we're starting to see this come into effect with chickens. So we've got big concerns about avian flu coming down from Southeast Asia to the point where they're targeting backyard chicken coops, but leaving the battery farms, a huge big um, concentration camps for chickens, essentially. They're allowed to go as biz- on as business as usual. And the scariest part is they've tiptoed around the idea of mandating mRNA vaccines for cattle against diseases that do not exist in Australia. Mumpy, bumpy skin disease, foot and mouth, mad cow. They want to start jabbing our, our beef for diseases that are not on this continent. Well, the mad cow is an easy one. Stop feeding the cattle brains of other cows. Like you, <laughs> Pretty simple, right? That's a no-brainer, <laughs> no pun intended. Like, 
If you know what the problem is that creates the disease, instead of making a vaccine for it and forcing the, the feed industry to change their practices, what is that? Like We already know where it comes from, the ingestion of the brain of another cow. Prevention is better than a cure, is it not? Oh, it is. But no, we need a key. Well, every every pound of you know brain counts, you know, we're slaughtering a million cows this year and each brain five. That's five million pounds of feed. We're gonna lose the bottom line. Oh my gosh, the stockholders are gonna sue us for you know, something like this. And I'm like, all right. Uh, but you know, I'm really hoping articles like this wake people up that you know, at what point, and I'm really asking a serious question, like at what point do people finally wake up and go, oh, they want to stop food production in all these major food producing nations? At what point do they wake up and go, whoa, whoa, this is no longer anything about climate protection. They're stopping the food supply on purpose. And, you know, that's one question to ask. But then everybody out there listening, I mean, you're, you might be very well pushed to the point of they're coming on your farm. They're coming to your house to, to steal your food supply. And when we come in a little bit further in the future, uh, that's going to be incredibly valuable. Like you might not make it if they take your food supply. And there's going to be some choices that you're going to need to make now in your mind. Like, what are you going to do and how far are you going to go to defend that? You know, you're going to have to make that choice before they're there. It's not like, oh, they show up and they're like, well, I'm thinking about should I do or should I? You already have to have this solidly in your mind. So it's like a two second response time for when you see people there. And what are you going to do now? The conditions for defense of that are quite different across the world. You know, America has a completely different method to do that than other places. So, you know, let's say you had four inspectors in your backyard. How would you stop them from taking? And then if you dispatched them, you know, there's going to be a response from police, et cetera. So then how far are your neighbors willing to go to because you're going to be next? You let them take food out of one place and people start starving in the neighborhoods or in your city, you're next. And what happens if, well, this whole city needs to be cleansed of backyard gardens? At what point do people in the entire city just stand up as like a unified force and go, oh, no, 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 no. Nope, you don't come in here. I think you hit the nail on the head. It comes down to community. Like if we have these government officials coming in and seizing people's crops, one off and you, you're trying to fight off the the official that's coming in to take your potatoes. Sure, he comes back with the police and you get arrested. That's a one-off. But if you have your entire neighborhood standing around your house protecting your property, we need to go back to what happened during um, the end of the collapse in the 20s where the banks were trying to sell people's houses and they were trying to sell it for pennies on the dollar. And what we had was the communities rallying around these people and protecting their homes and stopping people from coming in to buy their houses from underneath them. If we have farmers that are steadfast and strong in their communities, maybe they can send a message to the rest of the world. These people that have the blinkers on, living in their cities, watching TV, maybe they go, oh, geez, those farmers are uh, they are really onto it. They're really worried about their crops. Maybe we should be worried now. But unfortunately, I think COVID taught us a very valuable lesson that people don't realize there's a problem until the shelves are empty. And even then, they'll just think that the food's going to arrive sometime in the future. So when you mentioned the, the Great Depression, I know it was you know mainly centered in the U.S. with the largest amount of collateral damage here, but I know it, it spilled out into other nations. So when you were talking about that, were you talking about Australia? They were doing the same thing of taking the farms when they had the penny auctions? Uh, it was more so in, in the United States, like you said, but that's what I'm familiar with when the penny auctions were occurring. 
Australia, we were quite lucky with our geographical isolation from the rest of the world. And to, even to this day, we're quite an underdeveloped nation. So people kind of retained what they had. It was still very much a frontier country at that time. Yeah, because there was a lot of interconnect between Europe at that time during the mm. Great Depression. You know, like today's, you can't, they won't do penny auctions today. Like, you know, BlackRock will be in there on a computer screen press and I own that now. Mm-hmm. So it'll just be at that point, it'll be something similar when the new tenant or the new owner comes in and tries to, you know, take your goods out of the house or, you know, just move in. Then it'll take the community to stop the new tenant from trying to come in. There's going to be some difficult choices to be made here, you know, moving forward, because they literally are going to take your food away. And the the whole thing, you know, it, then it's really very different levels of if a country stops producing food. That's one thing very different than a, an inspector coming in to seize your garden. But what happens when they stop producing food in you know, the United States, Argentina, Australia, et cetera? And then they really ramp up these laws where you can't have a garden and you can only get it through uh, an approved distributor, i.e. Costco, i.e. whatever. And then you're forced back on the system where they rip up every shred of possible self-sufficiency that you have. And they push you CBDC-wise back into that you know whole tunnel of control. And you know then if you speak out against it, oh, your, your CBDCs got cut off. Because you didn't just let them come in and completely take everything and you just sit in your house and have a cup of tea and watch them with no disturbance, not even a single word, then you'll be allowed to keep your CBDC. But the minute you step out on your front porch, you're like, whoa, what are you guys doing? Oh, that's minus five. No, stop that. Hey, no, no, get out of the way. Oh, that's minus 10. Oh, you know, you, you just try to stop them from taking your food. That's a complete shut off for a month. I could see the blending of these two worlds and it uh, never really hit me until I saw this article here on Stopping the food production and registering your fertilizer is the first two things here. Like the registry of fertilizer in America for a farmer to get. And once they go past their allotted amount, which is yet undecided, it's just to follow the science. Well, how much is too much? Obviously, they're going to say like one grain of nitrogen fertilizer is too much. Stop the golf courses first. They're the biggest polluters. And if you go near any golf course, generally there's runoff into the ocean or into some lakes. There's huge, huge, huge algae blooms. I, you know, and I guarantee they're going to go after agriculture before they go after golf courses. And again, that comes back to the parasite class because they need their golf courses for relaxation. But you to be able to grow food is going to be off limits. Absolutely. They they want their downtime. They want all their luxuries, but with everyone else, the the peasant class that we are, we just have to keep going about our business as they see fit. Now to close this out, David, if you had a, a Paul Revere moment, now I know you've been giving fantastic information to your listeners for a long time now, but if you could have a Paul Revere moment riding through the countryside saying the English are coming, what would you say instead? What's the one bit of information you would do to warn people? What would you give them? The complex systems are going to begin to break down further faster now. They're in an amplification phase. Because you also said 2025. I have a lot of things 2025, and everywhere you look on the news, it's 2025. So between now and then, I mean, we're looking at, what, 18 months? So there's going to have to be an amplification of every breakdown thing, whatever the form that takes. And, you know, I am talking about complex systems here. But, you know, I know you love to talk about Tartaria, 
And I really believe that as we come into this 2024 magnetic field anomaly, there's going to be areas on the planet that experience a global liquefaction event. And we are going to watch mud and sand and water, et cetera, ooze out of the earth like toothpaste and start burying cities and you know, the, the top 10 or 20 feet of buildings will be buried across the cities. And there could be places that just simply sink like they did. And you've seen some of these more famous Japanese earthquakes where buildings actually just sink down in when it's shaking, the, the sand, etc. Like there's a lot of things to think about. There will be write-offs on part of the planet. And that's just a baked into the cake. So where does that leave you then? It leaves you with your self-sufficiency and your community. And again, not not if the authorities come in to confiscate or destroy your access to life, as in they're coming in and trying to dynamite your well. So they say, well, you can't use that anymore because the water table or this or that or the other. You want to have springs anyway. Wells are pretty contaminated. You want spring water. But if they were to come in and start blasting and saying, well, you can't use this water source anymore, you're going to have a problem. You're going to have to choose life or death then because when they do that, you die. So you have to put it in that context. If they're coming in to rip out your gardens, that's your food for your family. If that gets done, you die. You understand that. There's no in-between anymore. It's very black and very white. If they destroy your resources, you are going to die. And we look at it in the whole door and you could just do chat, go to the Bolshevik revolution, jump over to Ukraine, by the way, which is super interesting. We're back in the breadbasket of Ukraine again, of the central area there. Now, and look and see how the communists firewalled off all of the farmers, demonized the farmers, stopped food production and caused a famine. And when you look at that and you go, that's the blueprint they're using right now. You know, I didn't... I never would have thought the Bolshevik revolution and the whole, you know, Holmador over in Ukraine was coming back again. But with this article that was released yesterday, they are absolutely trying to start the Holmador 2.0, but on a global basis versus a single nation. Because firewalling off access to, you know, seed, food, medicines, whatever it was in the 1930s that they did for the farmers is no different than taking down the supply chains globally right now. And to stop agriculture and confiscate farm machinery is no different than what the what the, they did in the 1930s in Ukraine. So if they're coming for your farm machinery and, grew, and there's a group of guys or girls or whatever of the authorities that are coming to take your farm machinery, they're, they're going to starve you to death. And make no second guess about that. Their intention is to kill you. I encourage you to look at the Holmador in the 1930s and see what that whole chapter was about. Once you read it and you see the complexities in this article that just came out where they want to stop farming, what they've done with the Dutch farmers, how they're demonizing now, you know, fertilizers is being bad for everybody when they were great up until this point. And suddenly, what is it with this switch where every complex system needs to shut down, all travel needs to stop, all agriculture needs to stop on the planet. Everything that you need for your daily life needs to stop. And also they're going to cut your power at some point. And if you can, if they do keep it on, and then it's suddenly 16 times more expensive. And then what? You know, you can see the same gameplay. The Homador was run in Ukraine in the 1930s, but now I think it's moving out to the global level. I know it's a little dark to think about, but you need to understand the problem to really make a solution. 
Uh, at the very base layer of it is grow your own food, get your community set. Okay, that's if just things continue naturally in their own course, you're going to need to do that. But with levels of control on top where authorities are coming in to confiscate and destroy your, your ability to stay alive, that adds a whole new level to it. That's something completely different to think about. And it really is starting to dawn on me here this. I'm going to do a whole series of videos just on this one article here and how that com relates right back to what had occurred in the 1930s in Ukraine. I heard encourage everybody history is history is your crystal ball. A history book is your crystal ball. We're, we're this is so ridiculous what's happening right now. So Drew, I appreciate you having me on. You know, I hate to be dark in that last moment. People really are going to have to assess the situation. You cannot put your head in the sand any longer. This is a war against humanity. This is a non-human entity against Homo sapien sapien. And it's rolling out, and it might be under the guise of a badge on somebody, but they're just minions. They're taking orders from things on high. That is the non-human entity. That's the only way to perceive it is these things being done to people. I don't even want to quantify them as homo sapiens sapiens people, your neighbors, your family, your mother, your father, your relatives. They're being done to that. Your people you know. That is not human, whatever's in control of the system, creating the orders to then take sustenance and life away from people. That's just, you know, you got to wake up to that reality. And once you do, you'll start to see that prepping is, well, you're kind of behind the curve if you hadn't gotten ready yet. So it's still Saturday. It's the weekend versus Sunday. I lose track of days sometimes. Uh, but you still have a whole day to go eat, buy your first seeds, get your first shovels, get ready. Thanks, Drew. Thank you. Time is of the essence and we don't have time to sugarcoat it or to put it in the niceties of how we wish things could be. It's like you're the third monkey on the ramp to get up Noah's Ark and brother, it started raining. So you better start fighting for your life and what you've got ahead of it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for ha coming on, David. It's fantastic having you. And from someone who started off as a listener, I'm just so proud that I've had the opportunity to actually speak to you in person. Thank you for being on. Hey, my pleasure. We're all in it together. <laughs>